you aspire to be a superintendent, you think you know what the job might be like, but you may not really know. They bring together like-minded people, as well as organizations that are supporting school systems. And they bring the problem of practice with a group of people to talk through it, and then with vendors who provide solutions. And when you think about a notion of getting better, a lot of times people think that you're sick, but you don't have to be sick to get better. Having either that trusted network of colleagues when you're in practice or prior to practice becomes really important. That's what IEI does. Brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation where like-minded, hard-working professionals come to listen, learn, and connect. This week on Education Thought Leaders. My old friend Jess Gartner, CEO of Alibu, stops by, and we chat about EdFinance for a lot longer than you probably thought two people could chat about EdFinance. All right, welcome back to Education Thought Leaders with my friend, longtime friend, colleague, Jess Gartner from Alibu. How are you? Good, how are you? Where are you? Tell us about your your journeys. I think this is pretty cool. About a month ago, I sold my house and most of what I own. I pared down to a 10 by 10 storage unit for a few pieces of furniture and whatever fits in my car, including my cat. And we are doing a very long, slow road trip around the US. So we're spending about a month in each, each new city. I spent the month of August in Pittsburgh. I am actually back in the outskirts of Baltimore right now at my mother's house, um, preparing for our upcoming conference and a few weddings that I have here this month. And then for the rest of this year, I'll be in DC, Maine, and Brooklyn. And then after the holidays, I'm going to head south and sort of go counter or go clockwise around the US from there. Amazing. Have fun. At first, when, when this started, I was worried you were going to say you're living in the storage unit. I'm glad to hear that <laughs> just your stuff is living there. I did seriously consider going fully van life, but right. I also have a tendency to get very excited about things and then get bored of them six months later. So yeah. uh, I think I need to give this a few months of a, a trial run in Airbnbs before I take on the equivalent of a new mortgage uh, in the form of an RV. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. That that sounds really interesting. Maine's always been on on my list to so spend excited. more time. Yeah, I'd like to spend I've more time. I've never been. Oh, yeah? It's, yeah, I'm really excited. You'll see. I've, I have not visited enough. That's all I can say. I wish I could spend more time. So, And uh, holler at us when you're in Brooklyn. We'll uh, get together, yeah. Okay, um, so we're not here to talk about uh, your travels, although it's fascinating. Um, we're here to talk about FAFS, which we're really excited about, um, the future of Ed Funding Summit uh, coming up on the 21st, 22nd in Baltimore, your current place of residence for another couple of weeks. So um, yeah, we're, we, this is, uh, we brought this back after, took a couple of years off with pandemic, but we're back and we have a really good crew of folks coming to Baltimore to be part of this. We're thanks for thinking of us to be your partner on it. And um, let's talk a little about who's who's coming and, and what we're going to be talking about. I'm so excited to bring FEFs back this year. We started this conference in 2016 and we did it for four years and it was a great event every year. I, I always had people telling me how much they enjoyed the event. and then. For the past two years, people told me how sad they were that we weren't doing the event. Yeah. And, you know, for obvious reasons, we had to take a little hiatus. 
But so many people told me how important it was to them and how much they missed it that I just said, we've got to find a way to do this event again this year. And who better to help us put on an education event than the education event aficionados at IEI. So that was why, you know, I approached you, I think maybe about a year ago to say, we We got to do it again. Yeah. No. Would you guys, would you guys work with us on it? Because our team was feeling a little crunched on being able to do some of the event planning stuff of it, but we really wanted to bring the programming back. So I think what's what's super unique about this conference is that we make a really strong attempt to cross-pollinate ideas between these little subcultures or sub-industries of the EdFinTech world, the Ed Finance Policy world, the Ed Finance Research world, and the Ed Finance Practice world. And Part of the reason why this summit originally came about was because I was connecting with folks in each of those worlds. And I realized that they each had a lot to share with those other groups, but they weren't really talking to each other in a formalized way. And so I would look at some of the ed finance research coming out saying, oh man, you know, this this is so relevant for these policies that are that are that are queued up or this would be so relevant to our CFO network and we just had this crazy idea of what if we brought everybody together in a room and could create some of these intersection points in real time because the researchers certainly benefit from understanding what the day-to-day lived reality is of the CFOs as do the policymakers And vice versa, the the practitioners can really elevate their practice with some of what's coming out on the research and policy side. And then the tech piece is kind of a a through line that helps bring some of these things together in a a streamlined, efficient way and and really help with some of the implementation challenges of, of bringing those pieces together. So we've always sought to have a balance of both people, ideas, and sessions that run across those those lines of endpoints of intersection. And so it's just a great, great day of networking and learning and sharing the work that people are doing in their own little spheres of influence and hopefully creating much broader spheres of influence and impact by bringing these folks together. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit of an island of misfit toys for ed finance <laughs> nerds, right? Like it's, because there is no space really. You'll go to a double essay and there'll be a session or two about finance, but you yeah. know, it's always, you know, most of the sessions are about other important and wonderful things, but this is a time when we can really go deep on these issues. And, you know, our, we've we've been very lucky to have you as part of our events and giving, you know, thought leadership sessions to our group. So I like to think that the IEI members are are doing their part to get smart about ed finance. But I, I heard you say something a while back that has always resonated with me. That the superintendent who has a good finance person, but could potentially step in and do it if that person were to be out on leave, will be a better superintendent. Like if you understand it better, 
um, you're more likely to succeed in this because the financials, if, if, and if you don't, and if you rely on someone else, they could potentially be, you know, uh, at, at best, um, you know, doing stuff you don't know about and at worst hiding things from you. Yeah. It's really interesting because I think with education, leadership and administration in general, we've been so careful to make it clear that there is a difference between running a school or a school district and running a business, that the the aim of educating children is different than the aim of a financial bottom line. And while I generally agree with that, I think in some cases we have swung too far because the reality is that superintendents are still running tens or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of an organization or a billion dollar organization. And there are certain brass tacks organizational principles that keep an organization running and solvent and sustainable that are really important and can't be wholly outsourced or discounted. The leader really has to have their pulse on those operational things. And if you, if you try to completely delegate it or completely outsource it and, and ignore it, I think it's really at the peril of the educational and instructional components. Because the other thing I, I often say all the time is if you walk into a school, pretty much everything you set eyes on has a budget line for it. The teachers the technology or lack thereof, the books in the library or lack thereof, the crumbling or gleaming infrastructure of the building itself, right? Mm -hmm. Is the roof leaking? Do the windows open? Is the water clean? All of these things have financial strategy behind them or lack thereof. And for us to have a world-class public education system, we do need to think about some of these organizational and budgetary principles and how we make the best use of these resources to achieve those educational and academic outcomes. Well, that that's the thing that people forget too. Um, the average property tax payer is, you know, the, the large portion of that tax bill in most places is your school tax, right? Yeah. That's just how our system works. And then when you compare that with, you know, we had the folks from Finland at the spring summit and there was some, some hubbub and questions and conversation and concerns about, you know, how can we implement the things you implement in Finland when we have a completely different way of financing our schools? We don't have uh, a social safety net built around our schools and our kids the way you do. So I want to learn from you about the things you implement, but some of this is just never going to fly here because we do it through this, you know, some would say maybe antiquated property tax system. Well, that and just the levels of childhood poverty are very different and all of the challenges that that brings to right. a school community. And, and by the way, I think this is not just the superintendent. I think this goes both ways, too. I think if you if you just have a CFO who is sort of like, you know, green visor bean counter, that's not good either. We also, Why is it a green visor? 
<laughs> so I know exactly what you're talking about when you say that. Know, the old school uh, accountant like, guy. Accountant yeah. guy, right? Yeah, He's like, right. you know, windowless room. With his but you're inside. Why do you need a visor? I never County. understood that. I have no idea. Now I'm going to go look this up. <laughs> but it's it's an image that resonates, right? I mean, you Absolutely. know exactly who I'm talking about when I say that. And, and that's not good either. I mean, the other part of this is we need the superintendents and the principals and the instructional leaders to be more plugged into the, the moving parts of the financials and the budget. But we also need the budget directors and the CFOs and the operational leaders to be more plugged into the educational and instructional outcomes piece, right? It's also not good if we're talking about instructional goals and the finance director says, that's not, that's not my lane. We really need to have this cross-pollination and, and collaborative strategy on both sides. It's, you know, it's both folks to, need to dip into the worlds of of the other the other side of the house a little bit more for mm-hmm. for a really powerful collaborative strategy to emerge. I feel like we have two kinds of people with you know in the general population who don't know that much about this. There are people who think our schools are overfunded and people who think they're underfunded. Um you're one of the few people out there because I, I can make the case, you know, I'm sorry, I I can make the arguments that schools are underfunded till I'm blue in the face. Um, but you're one of the few people who actually can bring all kinds of facts and actual, you know, research and gravitas to that case. And you've, you've done so I think quite eloquently specifically around ESSER um, and share a little bit about your, your thoughts on, on ESSER and the, you know, whether this is appears to be a stopgap. Um, but you've, you've said many times that you think this is just the way it should be. And I wonder if that's how, how do we how do we make that case to the to the people? My framing around the overfunding underfunding debate is always to pose the question: For what or for why? What are you trying to accomplish? Right, because if our goal is to just have a bunch of kids in a building every day with a uh, supervision of someone who's over 18. Sure. I guess our, I guess our schools are overfunded for that. Right. Right. If our goal is to mitigate the effects of all of the other social net structures that have failed and put all kids on a path of equal opportunity to whatever workforce or uh, career options they want, no matter what their their socioeconomic factors are or their uh, their special education um, characteristics might be, then I think we are underfunded. And the other component to this conversation, that I don't see brought up a lot, and I love to remind people of, is that it is fairly recent in US history that we have even vocalized a desire to educate all kids, quote unquote, equally. Right, right. Right? Yeah. That's like a 20 year old idea, really. Yeah, I mean, you, you could maybe about that. map it to Brown v. Board of Ed, but you know, that, that's only 60 right. years. I mean, even 70. even right even if we go back as far as as brown 
right? We're it, that's less than a hundred years, right? Seventy years, barely. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and then you know, if we think about IDEA, which is um, authorizing for special education services and compliance around that, if we yeah. think about Title One legislation that talks about uh, some of the supplemental resources we're going to provide for students who are experiencing the effects of poverty in their lives. These are very new ideas and no child left behind had all sorts of unfunded mandates and unintended consequences. And um, we, you know, we could probably critique it for hours, but it was the first time in modern history that at a federal national level, we said, we really have to educate every kid, every kid, not just some, not just the ones that find school easy, not just the ones with wealthy parents who can pay for tutors after school, every kid. And that was a seismic shift in terms of national narrative about our education system. And that, so that is a new idea. Right. If you think about the entire history of even just U.S. public education, this is a relatively new idea. We're going to provide opportunities in education for all kids equitably. So if you think about that, the increases that we've seen in funding are just a drop in the budget, just a drop in the budget, a drop in the budget, but a good Freudian slip, a drop in the bucket compared to the seismic shift of of saying yeah. you know we're not we're no longer just going to pay attention to these the 30 the top 30% of kids we have basically said you know now all all 100% of kids you need to to get to this level of proficiency we just we have not thought about yeah. what the differences in funding would need and one of my favorite stats on this which is an extreme example but i think it really really gets to the heart of this studies have been done to show that in terms of the special ed compliance regulations and what it costs to meet those regulations for special ed students, the targeted funding for special education covers about 12% of that. Yeah. I mean, that's wild. Right. Where is that other where is that other uh, money coming from? It's a series of unfunded mandates, but it it can be very easy for for, you know, Joe or Jane public to say, you know, yeah, special ed, not my problem. You know, I want my taxes lower and these teachers make a lot of money and the, you know, it's almost like the 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 pension system we have um, becomes a political problem when people want to increase funding for schools. We want to increase compensation, which I want to ask you about compensation for school, you know, staff and teachers, but um, because the, the, the pensions have, you know, they, I think if you were to do an opinion poll about them, people would say that they're, that they would get a very low approval rating and people feel they're mismanaged and it's a boondoggle, et cetera. Um, and that, that hangs over every municipal agency, school district, government, et cetera. But Schools seem to really take it on the chin over it. And I don't know what that is about. Um, if it's a, for some reason, we, we feel our, our teachers should be paid, you know, the same as uh, people who dig ditches. 
um, despite having, you know, like a lot more, you know, they spend a lot of money on their education, to become teachers and, you know, they're, they're shaping the, there's nothing wrong with digging ditches. Like, you know, that, that those are important people as well, but the skills and the act, the education required, um, you know, it, it's, they're, they're different jobs and, um, and, and it's, and- Teaching is a different job today than it was 50 years ago in terms of the expectation of a teacher, right? The expectation of a teacher 50 years ago was essentially to make sure that the top 30% of kids went on to become accountants and lawyers and, you know, everybody else could, could go find a a job that didn't require higher education. We've now put a much higher emphasis on kids accessing higher education, which I also think we've, we've over-indexed on. I think we have, uh, I think that we have removed or limited options for very necessary, stable jobs that don't require a college degree um, and some apprentice apprenticeship tracks to those jobs um, to a fault. Right. I mean, becoming a, a a master electrician or a plumber is arguably a wonderful, very stable career path um, that would be a great option for many kids. And we don't have pathways to those careers um, in such a strong way. Or we've decided that they are they are less than in some way than being on a college track. And really, not everybody should go to college, I think, because yeah. that's. You know, that's not how our that's not how our economy is designed. Not everybody wants to go to college. And um, there are plenty of jobs that do not require that where you could you could have a really wonderful life. Um, But I think we've we've almost over indexed on this like college mentality that has probably been harmful in many ways as well. Well, I think this this generation of kids coming up will, I think, see a different universe around that. And I, I just say that because, you know, on our roadshow, we're just starting up our roadshows to go visit districts for this fall. But last fall, I went to two or three uh, IEI district career centers that were, you know, when we were kids, the career center was where the non-college bound kids went. So I never saw it. I didn't know what it looked like. It was not part of my life. Today, in a lot of these districts, they built these huge, beautiful facilities where you go to learn workplace skills or uh, technical skills or engineering or steam stuff. And it's for yeah. everybody. So, right. Yeah. Like you, a former student of mine who I think, you know, I've, I've uh, kept in touch with and been very yeah. close with, um, is, has been going through this program to do a series of inspection, uh, a, a series of certifications for like elevator inspection and, and subway inspection. And he's on a path for, a, a six figure job, you know, and he, he really just has to keep doing these certifications and, and testings. Um, and he's, he loves the work. He finds it really fulfilling. It's really flexible. There's a really clear path for advancement. And it took him way too long to find his way to that. You know, I, I wonder if that had just been presented to him more readily as an option a little bit earlier. Um, but he's finding a lot of stability in this career track. And I wonder how many other jobs are out there like that, where there's yeah. a really clear path that we could present to kids earlier. Anyway, I, I hope, I hope um, we're getting better at that. Um, so here's what I'm worried about with Ed Finance. I think we've, you said earlier that we've, 
Um, we, we expect more of our teachers now than we ever have. We're yeah. expecting teachers to be involved in social emotional development. Career counselor. We're expecting them. Career counselor, <laughs> uh, mental health, uh, wellness. Yeah. And psychologists, social workers. Yeah. And with, with Esser, like yeah. we're expecting that every kid has access to one-to-one intervention instruction. All these tutoring providers have popped up and they've, their businesses are growing like crazy. I can tell you just because we work with several of them. So when the ESSER dollars start to sunset, um, are we still going to expect the teachers to do all this stuff? And are we going to stop with the one-to-one virtual tutoring service and now expect the teacher to do one-to-one intervention instruction all night long? What's going to happen here? We've got a bit of a perfect storm brewing with ed finance that I'm I'm really worried about because in addition to seeing the ESSER dollars dry up in a couple of years, which we knew was coming, right? We knew right. We, know we all know it's coming. Funds. I've been yelling this from the rafters since since the legislation came out. We know these are one-time funds. We are seeing a bit of an increase in Title I funding this year. So that will help close that gap a little bit, but not, not nearly, not nearly at the levels that we saw with ESSER. Um, we are also seeing declines in enrollment. And I don't think that is going to be a trend that is reversed anytime soon because we know birth rates are down and immigration is down. So basically, since we have started tracking these numbers in public education, that trend line has gone up. And I think we are now at a inflection point where we're going to see that trend line go down for the first time. Yeah. And that is problematic on many fronts because one, I think this is going to be, this is happening at a time where people are also considering different options and the, the groups of people that are, that we're seeing leave public education, particularly in suburban public schools right now are primarily white. So we are seeing a diversification or a what's being called a browning of public education in a lot Mm -hmm. of historically white school districts. Mm -hmm. And what worries me about that is that when we think about the concentration of political power and who has the motivation to be funding these systems, it is by and large wealthy white families and communities. Yep. So if those communities are leaving public schools, I worry about what the political implications of that will be when it comes time to make budgets for public education. And I think we are already we're already seeing an increase in um, things like voucher expansion programs. And these his these so far the the experiments are few and far between right now, but so far we've seen them to be fairly regressive, by which I mean that the people that are receiving the vouchers are mostly parents who were not participating in the public school system to begin with. Yeah. They were already sending their kids to private schools. And now they're, now money is coming out of these education budgets going to these families. So I am 
concerned that much of these education budgets have been very fragile for a long time. And if we start poking holes in these budgets too fast, things will break. And the problem with that is that from the outside looking in for the average person, underfunding often looks like mismanagement because you don't have enough people to function well, right? So often the things that I see people pointing at as a matter of mismanagement is actually a matter of understaffing. It's a matter of that's no one's job in the district, right? We cut that position, but now it looks like mismanagement because no one is doing that no one is doing that job. And so it looks like, or, you know, and the people that are left doing administrative functions are overloaded. They're doing the work of two and three people. And so obviously if you're trying to do the work of two or three people, you're probably not going to do it as successfully as if you had real job specialization and people who had capacity to really, um, have this sort of organizational and administrative efficiency and effectiveness. Yeah. And so I worry that it's it's a bit of a spiral from a public opinion standpoint, because the more that you cut these resources, the harder it is to maintain levels of excellence. And then you have this downward spiral where the the you know the more you cut the resources the worse it looks and then the more people and then we cut the resources because you're not doing a good job and then it looks worse so we cut more resources yep and again i go back to that question what are we trying to do here what are we trying to do with public education do we want public schools to feed kids and be their doctors and be their social workers and educate their parents and do job placement for communities and be clothing shelters and grocery stores and provide tutoring and summer camp and career counseling. If we want schools to do all of those things, we have to fund schools to do all of those things. We can't just keep funding schools like we like we did when we expected 30% of the kids to go be accounts and lawyers and good luck to everybody else. Those right. are not the same budgets. Yeah. And, and we continue to rely on primarily the property taxpayer, which puts it in the hands of voters and, and, you know, voters can be very fickle. Um, If they don't like the football coach in a community, they can decide I'm not voting for the school budget because I thought the football team played badly. Right. And that, and that's voters have that right. That's how it works. But um, you know, our federal funding system has always been couched in emergency terms, title one it's for, you know, those most needy, IDEA, kids most needy. Um, And there's been, you know, there's a real, you know, there's always been a a real, you know, a a real lack of interest nationally in the federal education department getting more involved locally. Um, But, you know, I think people, people have enjoyed these dollars. I think people have enjoyed seeing their kids get access to tutoring services that they otherwise would not have had. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the, the voucher piece, I actually think the best implementation of that was the very temporary yet wildly successful child tax credit that we had. Mm -hmm. We reduced child poverty by like 60% in one year with that child tax credit and we didn't renew it. 
That is like criminal malpractice on behalf of Congress, right. in my opinion, right? And to me, the real benefit of, of that type of voucher or credit is giving parents and families the ability to have to offer some of those supplemental things, right? Maybe that is how you're paying for your uh your youth soccer league, your piano lessons, your after school programs, right. tutoring, um, an extra, you know, a psychologist, therapy, whatever, whatever the family deems necessary for the kid. But I really believe that those things need to be supplemental and not instead of funding our public education system to the fullest. Yeah. And in terms of equity, and this may be how you or I might be um, out of the mainstream on things, but like I didn't need the child tax credit, you know, like Mary and I work hard. We're, we have all kinds of privilege and we do okay. And so I'm kind of thinking, why am I getting this when there are other people who need it more? Um, so, you know, I don't know that we're ever going to solve that one from a federal policy standpoint, but I want someone to run for national office to talk about all the stuff that Esser did for public schools, right? Like, let's, let's talk about how great it was. Like there are kids who got instructional and mental health services or, or, you know, uh, got to see physicians and dentists because Esser or got broadband that they could reach from their home because of federal intervention. Like that's good air conditioning now because we had a what 30 year backlog of school infrastructure projects. I mean, yeah. that's the crazy thing, Doug, is like, if we, if we want to talk about the numbers, the last stat I saw on the backlog of school facilities projects was about $180 billion. Does that number sound familiar to you? Yeah. It's almost exactly what the entire ESSER allocation was, like almost, yeah, right. the, almost exactly the amount. And sure enough, we've seen a lot of districts use ESSER dollars for capital projects, which they've gotten grief for. And I actually think is a brilliant use of those yes, dollars because right. capital projects and equipment are great uses of one-time funds. One-time dollars. They improve the learning environment. They improve the the culture or climate or safety of the of the school or the community. They often um, they often set the stage for offering more wraparound services and resources or upgrading technology. And you only need to do those things every three to twenty years, depending on what the project is. Right. So I think they're just they're a perfect use of those funds. And I was saying last week, I really wish. The Department of Education would extend a blanket deadline extension for any dollars that are being used for capital projects, because the flip side of this is that to really do a big capital project well, it's going to take a while. Right. Yeah. I mean, like putting air conditioning in a building that was built in 1930 is not like a trip to Lowe's and you plug in a bunch of window units. You have to yep. you have to completely redo the electrical grid of that school because some right. of these school buildings were built before air conditioning units existed. Yes. And right? you only this have is the thing that people forget. And you only have three months of the year you can actually do the work, two months of summer exactly. and then a week here and there with breaks throughout the school year. 
every year this devastates me because I see people, I see people saying, how, why can't you just go buy air conditioning units or heaters? And the reason is that you would fry the electrical grid right. of the school. Yeah. So you'll so, have you'll have air conditioning for five minutes and then no lights ever again. <laughs> yeah. So when you talk about fiscal management and declining enrollment, my big fiscal third rail that I think we're going to have to start talking about at some point. I'm wondering if people talk about it in your world. Consolidation of districts. Yeah. And this is I, political suicide. You run for state of here in New York. We have 630 something school districts, right? Yeah. So like. We're the we're the Spartans and we're the Lions. We can't merge the high schools and be the Spartan Lions. Like that's not a thing that anyone's going to run on. But when you have because it it you know you live you're in Maryland. You're currently in Maryland. You guys have county systems. So my thinking is that you're going to get the best municipal finance person in the county or in the region to be your CFO of the district. When you get yeah. 630 districts, it's like who knows who's running the money, and then you got a board that they're reporting to. And is that something that could be, uh, you know, stimulated federally. Like we got every state to raise the drinking age to 21 and lower the speed limit to 55. Can we get districts to have an average size of, you know, 5,000, 10,000 kids so that we streamline the, 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 the expensive jobs at the top of the system? Yeah, this is something I, I think about a lot from a financial perspective. From what I've seen in terms of district operations and budgets, the ideal district size is somewhere between five and 50,000 students, 5,000 and 50,000 students. Somewhere in there. Which, but I mean, you say that, Doug, but believe it or not, right now, that represents like 10 to 15% of all public school districts. Right. Yeah, the they're all tiny. The vast majority of public school districts in this country are fewer than 1,000 kids. But the majority of students are concentrated in those larger districts. Right. right. It's like Pareto principle to the extreme because something like 90% I don't of even know what that is. I'm going to Google that. It's Pareto principle. Rule, right? Oh, right. Okay. Rule. I know that. Yeah. 80, 20 rule. But it's like to the, it's almost like the 90, 10 rule with, uh, with school district populations because some I, something like 90% of students are in fewer than 10% of school districts. Right. Right. We have over 13,000 unique school districts and, you know, with 50 million kids, we should probably have closer to like three to 5,000. Yeah. And it, um, so I it absolutely come down, think that's an issue. But I mean, is anybody going to do anything on it? Right. It, I think it's going to require federal intervention. I think a like when I think about my own state, a governor of New York will would it would be so hard for a governor to make that happen. But a strong one could potentially do that. That's just one state. But, you know, I'm saying the federal government has the power of the purse to get states to do stuff that are good for people. I wonder if they yes can. Incent no. This. So this is this is an interesting carrot stick problem, because what are the incentives to do something you don't want to do? to fund a system that you don't think is working very well, right? This is why, like, when I hear people say, well, what if we, what if we made like title $1, like performance-based or incentive-based, the states that desperately need those dollars do not think that schools deserve more money to fix these problems. So they're not going to enact a policy that they're not interested in 
for money that they don't think the districts need or deserve. And they'll want to maybe push it toward privatization, which is yeah, what a lot not, of people are worried these about. These are not aligned incentives. I know. And around we go. And I think that right right now, in particular, with how polarized our our federal system is specifically, I just don't see federal decrees on public education being yeah. very viable anytime in the near future. There will be so much. I think you're right. So much pushback on that. But we might end up needing to do these things by necessity because at some point, fiscally, it's not going to work. And New York is a great example because we have all the all these BOCES too, right? So we have all these agencies that essentially exist to fulfill these administrative functions that districts yeah. are too small to accommodate on their own. Right. So there's there's some inefficiency there too. More bureaucracy. If you had a more consolidated system with a more, you know, if you, if you think about the fact that administration is typically seven to nine percent of any organization, just like pure overhead administrative costs, mm-hmm. typically seven to nine percent. Think about what is seven to nine percent of a ten million dollar budget versus seven to nine percent of a billion dollar budget. Right. There's a, there's a lot more you can do from an operational and administrative standpoint with a larger budget because you have more wiggle room. But the, you know, the Title I regulations are no different. The special ed regulations are no different whether you're 800 students or 80,000. So yeah. you still have to do a lot of the same compliance and paperwork and reporting, but you don't necessarily have the staff to support it at a much smaller district. Yep. So Did what you're pre- saying, what you're saying, Doug, is that I, I got my work cut out for me here for yes. the rest of my career. I've got yes. I've got plenty of problems to keep tackling here. Teacher comp, district consolidation or lack thereof, economies yeah. of scale, funding, wraparound services, dealing with ESSER, off-ramping, uh, modernizing teacher comp. We got we got our we got our work done. <laughs> and, and we're gonna get after out. it in Baltimore next week. Um, yes. So did we it's gonna be so yeah. awesome. I don't think we like previewed the sessions enough, but I guess we just talked about the big I picture. I think we kind of did because we did, yeah. we're going to have sessions about state policies, about ESSER. We're going to have sessions about, um, about some of the impact of um, racial disparities in funding and what some options are at federal and state levels to correct that. We're going to be talking about funding formulas and resource equity. We, we really are covering a huge variety of topics. And I will have the same problem that I always have with BEPS, which is that I will not be able to choose which sessions I want to go to right. because I want to see all of them. There is yep. not a bad session in the bunch. Although I will say the one I might be most excited about is our keynote presentation. We're talking about ed finance in the media. Because all of a sudden, you've got a lot of headlines flying around about ed finance that a greater percentage of people are being exposed to. It's suddenly becoming a much more mainstream topic. It's not just this esoteric, nerdy thing. 
And so we are bringing together some of the best education reporters in the country. We've got Matt Barnum from Chalkbeat, Lauren Camera from US News, Corey Turner from NPR, Mark Leibowitz from Edweek, and Erica Green from New York Times is going to be moderating it. It is going to be it's going to be great. Outstanding I'm looking forward to that. I'm I'm yes. So I have a couple of questions queued up, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we're we're looking forward to it. Um, there are people coming from districts all over the country. Um, it's really easy to get to Baltimore if you've never been, uh, charm city, awesome place. Um, and, uh, yeah, we have a reception on the evening of the 21st and then on the 22nd, we get after it like you and I did today. Thanks for coming on, Jess. It's always good to talk to you. Absolutely. Thanks, Doug. Okay. This has been Education Thought Leaders, brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation. The superintendents, we don't have peers in our we, you can have people who support you, but no one's that's yours. Talking about shared solutions, talking about collaborating at a very, very high level. So coming here kind of gives you a little rejuvenation. That little pick-me-up. Superintendents and vendors from across the country, and that the whole exploration and development of new partnerships is critical.